Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Dr. Louise Ridden. She did her PhD at Aberystwyth University and is now a postdoctoral research fellow working on sustainable security practices at Tampere Peace Research Institute in Finland. She is interested in unarmed civilian protection, the politics of nonviolence, and feminist international relations theory. So welcome, Louise. Hi, Laura. Thanks so much. I'm very excited to have you here because you're also a twin in the sense that we've both just moved countries to take up new roles. And so we're both in this zone of chaos, and yet we've come together to talk about your research. So first things first, what is unarmed civilian protection? So unarmed civilian protection, or UCP, is a non-violent method of civilian to civilian and civilian self-protection in war. So really what it is, is about different ways for civilians to protect themselves and each other and to build kind of networks and communities and practices of self-protection within war. So rather than necessarily waiting for external armed peacekeepers that can often bring a lot of problems with them, unarmed civilian protection is really a practice that is centered around local actors who get to decide kind of their own peace and their own version of protection and what that looks like in their own community. Um, so it's really focused around um, community relationships, being locally led, things like early warning and early response mechanisms and kind of conflict monitoring, understanding what's happening within the conflict. And the main principles are, are being nonviolent, fundamentally nonviolent. So civilians can't go away and get a mandate for weapons in the way that peacekeepers maybe can. And the primacy of local actors. So it's not about having a big top-down peacekeeping mission that tries to include local actors, which often means you have this off-the-shelf blueprint and then you have inclusion where local actors can then come and sit at the table and everyone feels better. It's really not about that. It's fundamentally locally led and it's for civilians to protect the communities. There's also this principle of creating space for peace. So UCP isn't about creating peace in itself. It's not about negotiating a big peace settlement that will fix a conflict in a whole country. It's about reducing levels of direct physical violence against civilians to give them the space to kind of explore and pursue what peace might look like. And can you give me a concrete example when UCP has taken place in a country and what that looks like? Yeah, so it happens in lots of different conflict-affected areas. So Nonviolent Peace Force is the largest unarmed civilian protection organisation and they are operational in many countries. One country where they work is South Sudan, and something that they do is they have protective presence and protective accompaniment roles. So on a night, you might have an international volunteer and a national volunteer, so someone that's originally not from South Sudan and someone who is, and they'll team up. And they'll just do patrols of areas where there might often be violence or civilians feel under threat. And they talk to local people, they find out what's going on, they make their presence known there. And people know if they have any issues or questions or, or feel unsafe, they can go and talk to them. And a lot of that is about patrolling, but it's not a police patrol, they have no weapons. But just making their presence known and there are people there to help if you want them to be able to help. And what they do is build relationships with people in all different positions of power. So they might build relationships with local authorities, with some armed actors, with unarmed actors too. So if, for example, someone needs to get to a hospital, but it's dangerous for them to get there, because unarmed civilian protection practitioners live and work within the community and they know people really well, they can often negotiate safe passage for people to receive medical treatment and food and aid. So they're not there providing the aid and they're not there with a kind of armoured vehicle to push through areas of conflict. But they make it known that they will be coming through with civilians who are not part of the conflict and they're seeking aid. And it's good for everyone within the community to allow people to receive this aid. And they have women's protections teams too, where 
women can do these patrols um, and that's that's particularly helpful especially around issues like gender-based and conflict-related sexual violence um, when women go to collect firewater and wood they're often at a higher risk of things like sexual violence um, and what will happen is UCP practitioners and women's protection teams will accompany the women that are doing that and then you have witnesses and you have accountability and they're embedded within the community structures. So you have accountability, not through violence, but through relationships and through communities. And does this also happen in other places? So in the US, there's unarmed civilian protection at the US-Mexico border by a few organizations. And also community response teams within cities in the US is something that's increasingly growing. And some organizations like Meta Peace Team, for example, run what they called bystander intervention training, where they train people in nonviolent protection techniques. And it can be things as simple as engaging in dialogue and distraction. And the idea really is that you would do bystander intervention training. And that doesn't mean you then fly off to a conflict zone that you know nothing about. But if you're walking down the street and you see the police harassing someone, you have some kind of training and tools and you know what to do. You know how to record what's happening, how to intervene if you should intervene. Maybe you stand between people and put your body in the way. Maybe you don't. Maybe you try to distract the aggressor and someone else takes the person who's being harassed away. So there's many different things that can happen. But really, it's not about solving the core of conflict. It's just about creating enough space that you can reduce physical violence in the moment. And how formal is it? I mean, can I just decide for myself that as of today, I, Laura May, am an unarmed civilian protection officer or what have you? Or is it something people sign up to or get training in? Or is it something that happens spontaneously? How does it actually happen? So it, it's really context um, dependent is a huge part of UCP, which again is why um, it's a big difference that we have from more um, traditional peacekeeping practices that are rolled out. Um, so it's really context dependent and different organizations work quite differently, but training is a really important part of it so that no one would ever advise you to go and physically put your body in the way of a fight, not training and, you know, the so you're saying I can't go be a vigilante that's not in my cards today? That's not what I'm advising you to do. Thank you, Louise. You know, I was in danger for a moment there, but no, all right, you've saved me from this course of action. Thank you. Yeah, so training is super important to learn techniques and learn your rights and human rights a lot. And all of these things are super important. Also, a knowledge and an understanding of the context that you're operating within is really important as well because it's... It, Conflict is so contextual. And what UCP is trying to do is not solve kind of geopolitical conflicts, but to just provide safer spaces for civilians to operate in. And often, so conflict is something that's an experience. Christine Sylvester says that we really need to think of war as an experience. It's something that people live through and they try to raise their children and go to work and pay their bills during armed conflict. It's really this kind of thing that we feel and live through our bodies. And that's, UCP really has a kind of acknowledgement of that. Um, and it's really about relationships and relationships between people and conflict and people in spaces and all of these things. And so I was wondering, in unarmed civilian protection is there space for mediators? I have to ask. <laughs> is that a role that is actually used in that context? So there's often kind of informal practices of mediation. So again, UCP is not trying to mediate and negotiate at this kind of state level to then to say war is all the wrong or dictate these kinds of terms. But they might facilitate mediation within communities. So if there are two actors or groups that are in conflict, then UCP practitioners might act themselves or they might try to engage other people in the communities, maybe religious or community leaders, maybe older people, people that have authority and, and status within their community. They might try to act and mediate between different parties. And again, that often exists outside of what 
is traditionally seen as this kind of liberal democratic justice system that is often imposed and used to um, do away with and replace more traditional justice practices and architectures. So I think there is space for mediation and that definitely does happen, but it's, it's less formal again, because it's about community relationships and reconciliation, which absolutely can be supported. But again, it's not top down. I love how you framed this actually, because it actually, for me, captures a bit of a, almost a central conflict in mediation as a field, because I myself learned it in the context of peace mediation. And I learned about it theoretically and practically there. And then I used to run the International Mediation Institute. And obviously this podcast is now for mediate.com, where it's the other side of things. It's the people who mediate on a day-to-day basis, whether it's corporate or family or community or what have you. And so it's just fascinating to me because it sounds like in UCP, it's actually these people who work on the day-to-day basis with the families and with the community. And that's the skill set that's locally needed more than what we think of when we think about peace mediation and sort of diplomats work or, or what have you, which is, oh, no, we'll solve this overall conflict and sign a peace agreement, everything will be fine. So, but to me, it also highlights that these groups need to work together and to support, I guess, a process together in some way as well, right? So, yeah, absolutely. And this is really about everyday experiences and everyday pieces and everyday violences. It's really zoomed in. But also, again, that's where conflict is lived and enacted and practiced. We talk about war as though it has a life of its own and it's an event, but war happens when it's practiced because people do the practicing. Someone can send a military, but there are people in that military that have many different complex identities and relationships. And they're not just soldiers, they're also friends and sisters and football players and everything else that they might be so it's really just taking down to this level maybe they can mediate with a local police chief that might not be in the peace agreement but maybe they know him and they can figure things out that way okay and so who else actually does this work then there are organizations that have formal projects that are happening so nonviolent peace force for example, they will have kind of head of country in each country that, that is responsible for staff there. You often have a lot of volunteers, but volunteers have received a lot of training and are part of wider teams because obviously there's a principle of do no harm. You don't just show up in a country and hope that you can do something. But also the kind of principles behind unarmed civilian protection are something that means that it can happen quite quickly. And often when we talk about upscaling um, different practices, what we usually mean is how do we do it bigger? So my PhD thesis was originally supposed to look at the possibilities and limits of upscaling UCP. And what that meant was, okay, it's happening in five or six countries. How do we make it happen in 10 or 20 or 30? Do we go to the UN? What do we do? But quite quickly, I realized that just, it didn't feel like the point to do that. And also that I... You know, it wasn't for me to sit very comfortably in mid Wales and give instructions to people of what they should do. Because actually when practices like unarmed civilian protection and commitments to everyday peace practices expand, rather than being vertical, getting into the UN or NATO or any of those things, they tend to be horizontal. So they'll move from one town to the next, one city to the next, maybe one village, one family to the next family. And it often spreads organically and horizontally. So defining the strict boundaries of this isn't an armed civilian protection practice and this isn't, it's messy and blurry and there is a lot of debate within within the practitioner community about that. And Nonviolent Peace Force have had these big workshops where they bring in practitioners from many different countries and there's often lots of debate um, around different things and, and what constitutes UCP and what doesn't. I think really the factors that constitute it are being local ownership, um, the centrality of relationships and relationship building, and it being non-violent um, rather than just unarmed. It's really a non-violent practice. And there's a commitment to not only not using arms, but to never using them. We will never take up arms. That isn't what this practice is about because it's seeking to just reduce direct 
physical violence and create spaces that civilians can live some kind of normal life in within wider areas of armed conflict. I mean, as we're talking about the boundaries to what this is and is not, I'm really struck by this maybe slight tension between what you've just said in terms of this is about preventing physical violence, but at the same time it's about safe spaces and relationships and building people together. Is there also that element of protection from more intrinsic types of violence, which, you know, it's the types of violence where we're experiencing prejudicial behaviour against us, for instance, or emotional violence towards us? Is that also in the mix somehow? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because there's a lot of debate around the extent to which structural violences can be addressed through UCP. Should they be addressed through UCP? Is it possible? Is it realistic? What should the priorities be? And there's a lot of people that say, if we don't address structural and systemic violences, then we can never stop physical violences. And often physical violences are manifestations of misogyny and racism and homophobia and transphobia and unless we address these root causes then how can we have non-violence and Kindley Hutchings talks about ethical political pacifism but I would take that to mean non-violence and she says the commitment to this has to be both impure and absolute so it's impure because we will never get there we will never get to this end where there is this kind of non-violence and there is no violence anywhere And that's okay, that's necessary, we will never arrive there. But it also has to be absolute because unless we address other violences, and not just structural ones, but things like militarism and imperialism and patriarchal power structures, then we also can't have non-violence. So that's one school of thought. But the practicalities are really difficult, particularly when you have international organisations trying to facilitate UCP. So most of the organisations do have commitments to decolonising the practice and being locally led often does. That's a big part of that. It's about local ownership of peace and of security and of protection, networks and architectures. It, It gives space to people to create their own protection architectures and there is a real decolonial commitment within there. But equally... There are methods of unarmed civilian protection that instrumentalise actually these power structures themselves. So in Palestine, for example, there are some organisations that will send Americans, often who are white, to walk with and accompany Palestinians in areas where they might face physical threats and will very explicitly have their passports out and they will use their whiteness and their privilege and their passport privilege to provide protection. And they say, okay, this is awful. And it's awful that this privilege exists. And it's awful that there are these imperial power structures. But us staying at home also doesn't fix those power structures. Mm -hmm. And we can reduce direct physical violence that people are facing right now if we instrumentalize them. There's also these women's protection teams, these amazing women that are providing protection in their own community and really challenging norms and violences and issues that they face. But also they can sometimes instrumentalise the the power structures that put them at risk. So they're often seen as lacking agency, as just women. So then what they can do is engage with leaders and chiefs and say, okay, but, you know, they're non-threatening because they're just women, they're just mothers. And they can say, ah, but if you let us handle cases related to sexual violence, it doesn't matter, you don't care about that, just let us handle them, just give that to the women. And what that means is that rather than traditional leaders who are in charge of sexual violence and gender-based violence who might not take it as seriously and who might even force perpetrators to marry the survivor these women are in there and they're making sure that doesn't happen and they're finding different levels of justice and they're able to provide so much more protection and support to the women. But in order to do that, they need to lean into this non-threatening 
image people have of them, which is in itself violence. So it's really difficult and different organizations and different practitioners come down on very different sides of this. And I had a lot of interviews when I was doing my thesis and, and doing my research where people really struggled with these questions. And I don't think there's a clear answer. There is a big commitment and willingness to decolonize. And a lot of organizations will be at least 50% women. But then, yeah, particularly with international organizations, there's then questions of agency. And if you're then imposing your own belief system and your liberal imaginations and, the, and ideas of peace, then to what extent is there local ownership? So mm -hmm. it's really difficult and it's really complicated. And I don't know that there's a right answer there, but this is a big debate that people are really struggling with, I think. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what led you down this path? Why was this the research and the field that drew you in? So I have always been interested in kind of peacekeeping and civilian protection. We have these big debates about war and is it realism or liberalism and is it the state or power? What's really interesting? And to me, that was always beside the point. Surely the point is how do we protect people from this and how does that happen? And I've always been really interested in not just protection, but how people talk about it and think about it. And what is it that protection actually means? Because it's such a loaded word. And I keep saying unarmed civilian protection, but it's also referred to as unarmed civilian peacekeeping. Some people use the P to mean peacekeeping and there's big, maybe boring debates around which we should use. <laughs> Love a boring debate <laughs> in political science, yep. <laughs> yeah, I have many footnotes in my thesis dedicated to the... I'd like to imagine your thesis footnotes. Yeah, you're like, there's this argument, but it's boring. I'm just not going to include it. Like, just being totally real with the examiners, yeah. <laughs> so we have these big questions about protection. And my master's thesis was looking at how the UN Security Council, the language in Security Council resolutions when they authorise peacekeeping, and how do they justify it? And how do they talk about security? So then my PhD, the original question was, as they say, the possibilities and limits of upscaling and civilian protection. And then I got a few months in and I just had this really strong feeling that I wasn't the right person to do this project. I wasn't a practitioner and it felt like a very quite positivist and almost like a policy question I was trying to answer. And I was lucky that I had a really great supervisor and we had a chat and I said how I was feeling. But then... There was parts where I was talking about the project and this idea of nonviolence, and they thought it was so interesting and I was so excited about that it became clear, okay, that's what the project is on. It's on nonviolence and what nonviolence might mean. And then unarmed civilian protection for me is a case study of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. Nonviolence is so difficult and can be quite abstract and difficult to get hold of. So UCP kind of embodies that nonviolence in a way that makes it studyable and I just found this idea of nonviolence so interesting because it's so difficult to account for in literature and international relations it's very easily dismissed it's not really there and that in itself was really interesting to me okay if we, we can't talk about nonviolence, but we often don't really talk about violence either we talk about armed conflict or war or my personal favorite is the use of force by whom is never really said. So we have the euphemisms because we can't even name violence and we don't need to because it's so deeply embedded. Um, so then that's how I got into feminist international relations that really takes seriously this commitment to naming violence first and then trying to move beyond. So that's how I switched to look at nonviolence and how people talk about it and how we actually make sense of armed conflict we have all of this knowledge in our armed conflict but how do we get it and what does that mean and whose knowledge counts as knowledge mm. and then for me what are the roles of violence and non-violence in this production of knowledge how do we know what it is that we know and is there violence embedded in our ways of knowing as you've been talking it's actually reminded me of this paper I encountered recently 
It was by Leanne Hartnett and it was about this idea of how love orders and it pointed out that in international relations, even when we acknowledge emotion or acknowledge force, it's about hatred and yeah, use of force, if you said, or armed conflict and this other stuff. I mean, in your case, nonviolence and in her case, love as actually a, a sort of a bonding emotion in international relations are totally absent. Yeah. It's just fascinating to me that international relations as a field it does have these strong biases at least in the literature we learn from that I also attended British universities it's about hatred and who's outside and how do we throw them out and who are we violent against as opposed to actually what brings us together what are the things that we do that aren't actually bashing each other with sticks um which is how I always like to imagine violence when (laughs) because apparently I can't agree with some of the stuff that the conflict researchers do and it's just, it, it fascinates me that our field has this particular skew. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's often this assumption that to talk about nonviolence or the ethics of care or love or relationships and family and all of these things, it's somehow naive and you're missing the point. Mm. But I think really what's important is being able to embrace the complexity and the messiness both conflict because that's what life is and if we say that war is experience then that's part of life and we need to talk about what makes experience and it's how we think and how we feel and that might be scared or courageous or sad or in love and all of these things happen against the backdrop of armed conflict and I think that's something that always frustrated me that whenever we talk about these kinds of this is a war zone the people that live there, we then have these very binary understandings of it's either safe or it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it flattens people down so they're either a soldier or a civilian or they're a victim or a perpetrator. And it gets rid of the kind of complexity and the messiness that really is what constitutes war. And ultimately, there is always war within peace and peace within war. And to try and have these binary understandings just misses so much of the the complexity and the experience and it is it is ultimately these experiences to me that I think should be at the center of our understanding as a as a feminist peace researcher and that's for me what was quite interesting about an armed civilian protection too when I started thinking about okay how do we break down these binaries Because often one of the biggest binaries is you have the protector on one hand and the protected on the other and the saviour and the saved. And what unarmed civilian protection practitioners are doing is saying, well, no, we're both, right? We are protecting ourselves and each other and our communities and we're creating space that is safer and reducing violence. So they're protectors and protected and they are saving and they are saved. And I think that's so important to help us to think about international relations and particularly armed conflict in a way that isn't trying to flatten people down and get rid of the noise and the mess and the complexity because I think actually that's the point. That is what armed conflict is. Okay, we might have geopolitical drivers, but they are embodied and they are experienced by people who are complicated and who have many identities and experiences and affective emotions. Um, So to get rid of them out of research, I think, loses so much. Mm. And it strikes me as well that, of course, war and peace is just as much of a a false binary. I mean, I remember when I learned that there was was some arbitrary organisation, right, that decided a war was when there's a thousand deaths. And so before that, it wasn't a war. And afterwards, it was. And it's just... But yet this whole idea of war is so reified, like it's war now, it's real, and then there was peace before and there'll be peace afterwards, and these are these true blobs, but in reality it's just made up by somebody what a war is, and it's just this continuum (laughs) of violence and nonviolence and and being safe and being saved, as as you said yourself. So, yeah, it really, I guess, captures that whole fallible notion I think what's really important to remember though is like okay this is very arbitrary there's this saying that the thousand and first battle death is the most important Mm -hmm. because that's the first one that really counts it's Mm -hmm. the one that makes it a war 
And on the one level, this it's really arbitrary. It's not a war, it is a war. Does that matter? Actually, if something is a war zone, then it allows international actors to mobilize mm-hmm. certain ways and do certain things. You then, maybe you have aid, maybe you have armed intervention and the use of force, which legitimizes violence in the protection of civilians. So we then add more violence. And you can't do that if there's not a war zone, mm-hmm. but you can if there is. So who gets to decide whether something is or isn't a war is really important. Because on the one hand, it's just words and it's an arbitrary distinction. But actually, when everyone agrees and talks about and narrates something as a war zone, then it becomes one and it's mm-hmm. produced as one. So it's really important to think about how people talk particularly about spaces, is that's a, that place is a war zone and it's dangerous. So then protection actors go in and they build military fortresses, essentially the barbed wire and the high fences and they have lookout posts because it's dangerous outside and they need to keep that dangerous other outside and inside here is safe. So then they go out with their weapons and they're on guard against the enemy. But outside is civilians experiencing war that two deaths ago, wouldn't have legitimized and necessitated tanks and armored vehicles Mm -hmm. and this big military industrial complex moving in. So it's arbitrary, but what that facilitates is really, it's real and it's tangible and it's violent and it's really important, these kind of distinctions that come after it. Mm. And I actually want to talk a bit more about the role of international organizations because I sensed perhaps some frustration from you earlier when you were talking about top-down approaches and the role of peacekeepers in some contexts. Is that fair to say? Is frustration the right word to use? Um, I don't know if it's frustration so much. I think where my frustration lies is that it's often seen as the only option. So something has to be done Mm -hmm. and what that something is is armed peacekeeping usually but then it's difficult and I'm not making normative judgments and I'm not saying that you know unarmed civilian protection displaces the need for armed protection I don't know that's not my call I'm not a policy maker but I think when you have these big bureaucratic structures that come in it often displaces civilian agency in a way that I think is really difficult and can be unhelpful and can perpetuate more violence because you then have these really big uneven power structures and power dynamics particularly if the kind of saviors and the protectors are these external people that are there particularly when they have weapons there is these huge power imbalances in power structures So then we have these kind of strong men, and it is men, you know, over 95% of the uniform peacekeepers are men, which is down from 98. So I guess it's, you know, it's in progress. But then, you know, we then have this narrative that we have these strong men come in to save weak women and children. And we, Mm -hmm. and Cynthia Enlow talks about this, of having kind of women and children without spaces in as though it's one category and one word. It's not women and their dependent children, it's women and children. So then women become infantilized and kind of assumed to be children and treated as them and have agency and possibility removed. Or they're also homogenized. It's like, okay, but we do this for women, we include women. And it's like, okay, but what do we mean by women? You know, again, women people and people are complex and have different identities and agency and the problem is that when we have this kind of violence it again forces us into these binaries so are you helpless or are you a potential threat Mm. and it's quite difficult to move beyond these binaries when you have armed peacekeepers have to make life and death decisions in a second you know and we can't take these decisions back You know, I don't know what my position on that is, but I think I have a frustration with this kind of flattening of agency and complexity and diversity of people. And then trying to fix that by saying, well, will we include people? Because 
inclusion is better than nothing, but inclusion implies that you have your status quo that exists and then you can bring people in. This, mm-hmm. When we talk about inclusion, that gets rid of any other possibilities. What if we implode the system that exists and rebuild it? You know, there, there are so many other things that can happen. And I think I get frustrated when the idea is that something must be done. That means that we have to send people in to help these who are helpless people. There's no acknowledgement of agency and the protection work that's happening because ultimately, whether it's armed conflict, whether it's um, natural disasters, whatever it is that's happening, it is communities that are the first responders to help themselves and each other and to support each other and to support people that are maybe elderly or struggle with mobility and have early response and evacuation. It is communities that are doing this. And rather than supporting communities and capacity enhancements and all of these things, it's often assumed that communities are either these kind of dangerous other or they're this infantilized homogenous group that we can go and save and won't they be so grateful. And I think both of those are quite problematic. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk then about the findings of your thesis because we've heard about what you studied and why you studied, but I want to know what you found out. And from what I gather so far, you found there were three key themes in nonviolence. So what does that mean? And what were the themes and what do they mean? Tell me all the themes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, so... I might go back to the the beginning and say what the themes aren't first, in case that's helped. So when I first started looking, I was looking at unarmed civilian protection and then nonviolence. And I wanted to understand how nonviolent people and nonviolent actors made sense of conflict. And the way that we're taught traditionally in international relations is that there are three themes. You have power and you have the state and you have security. So my first two, I was like, okay, each of these is a thesis chapter. I'll write them all up and then I'll be done. And that was literally the title of a course in my undergrad, Power, State and Security. (laughs) (laughs) So it's definitely a dominant theme in IR. Yeah, Yeah, this this is how we're taught to think. And I remember telling my supervisor, I'm going to have these themes. And she was like, why? Where have you got them from? Mm-hmm. I was just like, what do you mean? If these are the themes, <laughs> why would I ever need to justify them? So then I started interviewing practitioners. And then first of all, I realized, okay, power is complicated and it's embedded in lots of different things. And separating out power and nonviolent power was just not something that I thought worked. And people have written about nonviolent power. And often as the power of nonviolence, and particularly with things like resistance and strikes and protests and boycotts, it just wasn't what I was doing. So I thought it's fine. I still have the state and security. And then I asked people. <laughs> My two themes, they're still there. Yep. You know, two chapters each will be fine. And then I asked people how they thought about the state. And honestly, people said they didn't really that much or when they did talk about the state what they were talking it seemed like a proxy for talking about actually the spaces that they operated in because often the state either didn't really exist in the way that we're taught that it does in IR and it was actually the spaces that were really important and contested so what kind of spaces Uh, so like physical spaces, so certain towns or villages or geographical regions were really important. And borders, international borders might be important in the sense that it's difficult to get across them. Yes, because the state is guarding them. But the state exists really when it's practiced and when it's embodied and lived by people, right? So like I've been in Finland three weeks now and I've had many interactions with the state the state bureaucracy and you've enjoyed every minute of it right it's been amazing I've learned so much <laughs> but really what that means is that I've when I've interacted with the state I've spoke to people I've sat in the tax office and I've sat in the police stations to get my ID I need to go to the police station and when I sat in the police station I was very quiet and I didn't want to answer the phone because you're in this space that is 
I wouldn't be arrested or physically hurt with violence for doing that. But that space, being in that space and being in a police station disciplines you to behave in a certain way. And when I was at the tax office, there was a lot of discussion around Brexit rules and it was a bit frustrating and I felt I could push back. When I had a similar conversation in the police station, I didn't. And it wasn't until I left the building, I thought maybe I should have. But there's something about that physical space that makes us behave a certain way, expect behaviours from us. And you have the very hard seats and it's uncomfortable and the police are walking around projecting this this authority to use legitimate violence. So physical spaces can be really important and the physical architecture, but also the social construction and production of what these spaces mean. An example of a river might be a space where communities meet and often particularly for women who might go and get water and they can meet and build relationships and have friendships and often build relationships across lines of armed conflict and that can be really great for protection. Or it could be a space of armed conflict of people fighting over resources and then that's a dangerous space rather than a safe space. But we can't say rivers are one thing, it's the same river, but it has different social and political assumptions and relationships and things around it. Never the same river twice? Yeah, exactly. This is why the river is such a nice example, because it's not just about this water. And actually, it's produced and the meaning of it is produced through relationships and relations with it. And... When we speak in English and often Western languages and particularly colonial languages, we talk about things and language is very individualistic. So a river is a river. We have a word for that and we have a word for water. Whereas actually in some indigenous languages, the word for water, there isn't just water or river, but it matters what that water is doing. So if water is flowing, it's about the relationship between water and the mountain that's flowing down or the glass that it's in or the person that's drinking it. So we think of things in these very binary ways of everything is a a thing. Mm -hmm. And actually, what if maybe it's relationally produced and the meaning of things is produced through relations. So that's a bit of a tangent, but that's how I got to, to space. And I had an interview with someone where I was asking, like, okay, how do you make sense? conflict what is it that helps you make sense of it and in this interview they were really nice and really friendly but very formal and they had this zoom background on it and they kept saying is that the right answer is that okay and every time if they would swear it was like i'm so sorry and then at some point their dog came flying into the shop and it disrupted the background and it was chaotic and they turned off the background and introduced me to their dog And then showed me around their house and I showed them around mine. And we had this big chat about living alone during COVID, it was 2020. And how lonely we both were and scared sometimes. And then we restarted the interview and it was just completely different. It was so different. And then they went back and said, actually, can I say more about this and this? So it became so clear to me how important spaces are in how we make sense of things in the world and how we talk about them and narrate them. The spaces was one. And then the bodies that produce the spaces. I keep talking about war as an experience and how we feel is so important. And also the gendered and racialized body, things like age are really important. We often assume that age is this kind of binary fact. But actually, things like the category of youth in South Sudan is anywhere between 80 and 45. And it depends. Do you have children? Are you married? Um, if, if socially produced. So all of these things that are mapped onto bodies to give them political and social meaning were also really important. And then the final thing, the final theme and chapter that seems quite out there um, is temporality and time and how we talk about and narrate what time might be. So I was interviewing someone and they were saying, with nonviolence, we're just trying to take a little bit of time and slow everyone down and violence is so fast and non-violence is slow. And there's this idea that non-violence has to be repeated again and again. It's less sticky than violence somehow. But practitioners didn't think that was a bad thing and actually 
they thought that was good because they didn't want to be locked in to one kind of peace agreement forever. It was, let's keep countering violence and rerouting aggression. Time and how we imagine it is in so many of our metaphors. We allude to it all of the time. Right then? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's our time now and particularly politicians and foreign policy talk about the future and the past and they politicise them in these really important ways. And I think an example is there's often a narration of time that it's this kind of singular linear path. And that can be a big problem because that can be used to justify colonialism and colonial interventions and imperial interventions. So if all states are on one singular path and one singular timeline, states that don't look like, say, the US, for example, are therefore in, they're in the past. So they're these children and we need to go and help them. And maybe we need to use some violence to do that because maybe children need to learn. And after 9-11, George Bush had given a speech and it was about how we, as in in the West and the UK and the US in particular, we've seen this kind of violence before. Um, We had this kind of evil in World War II and we defeated it. And therefore we need to intervene because it then means that Afghanistan and Iraq are not separate, distinct countries, but they're in our past. Mm. And we've been there and we've done that and we can intervene because we did this before and we won. So we'll go back and show them. And again, it reduces any kind of complexity to talk about the flow of time in this way because it's you are in our past, so therefore we're the adults. And there's this idea that the present tense, the space that we're in now, we're simultaneously as wise as we've ever been. We stood on the precipice of, of all of our history and the culmination of the knowledge and the experience we have. But then we're simultaneously at the precipice of the future and we need to act now. Now is the time for action. And we've never had more capability or capacity to make this decision than we do right now. It's never been more urgent than it is seconds and there's this perpetual I feel anxious you even saying these words I'm like oh my god I've got to do things what am I doing <laughs> it's really no I'm sorry we don't need to do this there's this kind of there's this like utmost urgency of the present so we always need to act now now and we're always justified to do so because we as actors in the west we're the kind of sole occupiers of the present because other states are in our violent past and it's the west who singularly occupies this present therefore it's only western actors that have the authority and the wisdom and the legitimacy to act so although these discussions around time feel quite abstract there's real tangible parts to them and for non-violence i think often creates space to think about times and, and temporalities in a bit of a different way so practitioners talk a lot about cycles. So, so we have cycles of violence. People accept that. But by taking really seriously war as an experience in the everyday, they also talk about cycles of season and environmental cycles and how that fits in. Cycles of volunteers and interventions and political cycles. And also life cycles. Yeah, I was going to say generational cycles as well. We hear about generational trauma around conflict but also not around conflict and that's also another cycle right these things keep coming back and recurring and the wheel keeps spinning and so on yeah exactly and often when we talk about gender we often use that as a euphemism for women and it's not men are a gender is masculine and often young boys are pressured to in this pursuit of adulthood and pursuit of manhood, they perform their masculinity through violence to go from being boys to men. You do this through violence, and that's important. It's demonstrating that you are a man now, particularly when you have these permeable age categories. And being able to engage with that and challenge that is really important too. So nonviolence is something that I think is really interesting when we think about time because when you have nonviolent practitioners and you take a nonviolent political understanding of armed conflict, you don't have this definitive start date and this definitive end date because actually what you see is that conflict is happening everywhere all of the time. And actually it's not the conflict that's the problem. It's when 
that conflict is rooted through violence. So trying to constantly reroute conflict is why nonviolence has to keep happening and keep being practiced. And that's often why it's dismissed. You know, it doesn't work, quote unquote. People often ask me, does unarmed civilian protection work? And I always say, well, it depends what you mean by protection and it depends what you mean by work. And really it depends what I mean by yes and it depends what I mean by no. Because it's not that simple and it's not that binary because we will always have to commit to rerouting aggression and to trying to interrupt cycles of violence. And that's only possible if we step away from this idea of this one singular timeline and we'll progress. We we will inevitably but eventually get to this place where there's no violence and there's no war. So, okay, we might need to do some more violence now to speed that up, but ultimately the ends will be justified by the means. But once you take away those ends and you say, but, but maybe we don't have the ends because time is a bit more cyclical than that, then you need to think a lot more carefully about your means as well. If I can, you've used the word root. I know this is not the type of root you're talking about, but in some ways I'm hearing it's a bit like a garden bed, right? And, you know, if you're gardening, you need to pull out the weeds every year so that they don't take root and they don't grow and in this context the the weeds are the violence it's not that you weed the garden bed one time and then no other sources of conflict and no other weeds will ever blow in it's like no no this is a cyclical thing or a cyclical thing you need to keep doing it and keep practicing and keep maintaining and then maybe you'll end up with a beautiful garden maybe you won't if you're not a gardener like me but you have to keep weeding yeah, I think that is a perfect metaphor. And the more you do the weeding, it gets easier and you get more tools and it becomes quicker or more of a second nature. But yeah, you have to keep doing it. And also for people that love gardening, it's nice to have the nice garden at the end, but the gardening is the point. Yeah. And I think that's what's really important here of the protection is the point. It's not we use it to get to this utopian end. It's the protection is the point because that's how people are living their lives and experiencing the armed conflict. So that is the point as well. The complexity and the practice of engaging and building relationships is the point. Beautiful. So on that note, Louise, thank you so much again for joining me today. And for those who are interested in learning more about you and your work, where can they find you? So I'm on Twitter at Louise underscore Ridding. And you can find my email on the um, Tapri website, which is Tampere University, Finland. And if you search my name, I'm on there too. You are very easy to Google, actually. I mean, there's not that many <laughs> Louise Riddens out there, it seems. Uh, it's well. a niche name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good job. Well, look, thank you so much again. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.